You are listening to the Reality Steve podcast with your host, Reality Steve. He's got all the latest info and behind the scenes juice on Claire's upcoming season of The Bachelorette and interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. Now, here's Reality Steve. Welcome, everybody, to podcast number 180. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Got a great show for you this week. Never had her on the podcast before, and an interesting thing to note, she's never done a podcast before of anybody's. So I'm real excited that Emily O'Brien from Ben Flanick Season is this week's guest. Before we get started on that, a couple things real quick. I do want to mention to you that, again, I mentioned it last week. I mentioned it on the Sunday night show with Ashley Spivey on our Instagram live show every Sunday night at 9 Eastern, excuse me, 8 Eastern that um, I do have access to N95 masks. They are FDA approved. They are made overseas. I know people. a lot of people are having trouble getting masks. Some of you have already responded and have made your orders. And the best thing about this is that I'm being told you will get your order within two weeks of placing your order. You will get your masks. Um, it's a 300-piece minimum. Prices are changing every day. But if you are interested, email me at steve at realitysteve.com. That's steve at realitysteve.com. I will forward your information on to my father. He is handling everything uh, with his buddy who works with a factory overseas. So that I just wanted to get out of the way as well. A lot of you have responded, and a lot of you have placed orders already, so that's good. Um, obviously, masks are at a minimum right now, and anybody can get masks, or anybody people are trying to get masks, and they just can't. So here's another option to get them. The pricing is very competitive from what I'm being told. But it changes every day, so that's why I can't give you a set price of what uh, what we're looking at. But anyway, um, I don't have a lot to get into here uh, other than anybody that's listened to my podcast or read anything that I've written over the last eight years knows very well that Emily O'Brien is one of my all-time favorites, if not my favorite person in the history of this franchise. Um, Emily and I have remained friends over the last eight years. You know, we'll text on occasion, and I have met her one time. Uh, a couple years ago, and just as great as in person as I expected. And I've asked her to come on the podcast in the past, and Emily has always just kind of been like, you know, look, my season was eight years ago. I understand you have people from other seasons, older seasons on than me, but I just, there isn't a lot for me to talk about. I don't really, you know, I really want to do it. Then obviously with the coronavirus situation popping up, Emily, in case you didn't know, is an epidemiologist. She studies this for a living. Uh, she is in North Carolina, where there's some heated debates going on right now about what's acceptable and what isn't. But um, I kind of wanted to make this podcast a discussion about the coronavirus and maybe answer some questions that a lot of you have, but maybe think you don't want to ask because it seems too simple. So kind of a coronavirus for dummies here. Like I'm going to ask just basic questions of Emily of what this is, what to expect, because we've all heard things over the last six weeks. But with so much misinformation out there, what is fact? What is fiction? What about vaccines, antibodies, testing, all this stuff? We cover it all in this podcast, and it is one of the most informative podcasts that I've ever done. I was so happy that she did this, and I hope you are too. I I'm guessing you will learn something out of this. Even if it's one thing you take out of this podcast, I guarantee you'll learn something that maybe you thought you knew, and you were like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that wasn't right. 
or something you didn't know. And Emily makes a point of it. And you're like, wow, did not know that. So a very fun discussion. We do talk about Ben Flanick's season for the first 15 minutes of the podcast. Pretty generic stuff, just kind of going over her experience on the show. But then the remaining hour is all coronavirus talk uh, with Emily. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and get ready to be informed. Podcast number 180. Joining us now, uh, you remember her from Ben Flanick's season of The Bachelor. Um, if you've read anything I've written over the last eight years, um, you know she's in my top three favorite women of all time in this franchise. But most importantly, uh, she is an epidemiologist, and I wanted to bring her on today to talk about everything going on right now with the virus and provide some insight to, to what we're dealing with. It is Emily O'Brien. Emily, so glad to finally have you on. Hi, Steve. I'm I'm sad that I'm top three. Thought well, I was number one. Well, I must have I mean, fallen. It's it's like an ever changing. You're never gonna go. Put it this way. You're never falling out of the top three. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, okay. Glad so, that's settled. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm sure that's very important on your uh, list of priorities here. Um, I couldn't get Dr. Fauci on, so basically, I got mm. the next best thing today. The Fauci, he's a little busy right now. Um, he's got some other priorities. Yeah. Um, your life is so different than from when you were on Ben season back in God, 2012, when it aired, that's crazy. Um, that's why I don't really want to spend too much time talking about it. I really wanted to bring you on since we're going, what we're going through as a country right now and in your line of work. But since I've never had you on before, let's briefly talk a bit about your season, which does seem like forever and a day ago. Does it even feel like you were a part of bachelor nation? Like, I don't get the sense that. It, you think that you were ever on this show? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I, it, it was a thousand years ago. Um, you know, I have to say it was a really fun experience. It was pretty intense for the first probably year or two after the show in terms of people asking me about it and recognizing me. And then it really died down quite a bit. And I think that was partly sort of self-driven that I um, got back to school and needed to finish, finish my PhD and then was looking for a job. And so I kind of needed to uh, distance myself a little bit from the franchise, but I still see it as a really fun experience and a unique one. And I'm, um, I'm glad I did it. I didn't find love obviously, but yeah. uh, really, you know, had a lot of fun and I think it's kind of a cool, unique thing to have done. I mean, you can look back on it now and just be like, Hey, this will just be something I can show your kids someday. Um, yes. And if only I could, if I could somehow get my rap off the internet, I would be super happy about things. But unfortunately that seems like it's going to live on forever. <laughs> Emily, that's the whole, that's the best part of what you did on that show. Like, it's, <laughs> it's literally because no one else, I mean, there have been singers, there have been rappers, people try to put something together and spit some lyrics, but that, that rap you spit to Ben on the first, it was, was it the first night or the first date? It was the first night. Yeah, I'd been holed up in a hotel room and was literally just kind of going insane and looking for some sort of outlet. And so it uh, came together on like one of those pads of paper that they include in the the Hyatt hotel rooms. And I uh, somehow decided it was a good idea. And I can't believe it made it on air, but it did. So <laughs> apologies again to the world for that. But and it's never leaving. I'm telling you, no one's ever oh, getting rid of that thing. It's terrible, <laughs> terrible. What was your um? What was your favorite memory from your season? I don't know if it was a location, a particular date. Um, I mean, I know what mine is, but I'll let you go first. I I really liked the baseball 
date that that we had, I mean, it was very intense and nobody was giving up, even though the game went on for like six hours and it was very sad at the end. We just all took it so seriously and it was fun to see the competitive vibe and kind of get to do something athletic. That was probably my favorite group date. One-on-one dates, not super fun for me because I think Ben and I just didn't have a, a really great connection, but um, I loved the girls on my season. Every time that we were in a big group, I had a lot of fun. So probably probably the group dates in general and then that, the baseball date in particular. I mean, your first one-on-one was something that has never been done in this show's history, either before or after. I mean, you got to climb the Bay Bridge. <laughs> like, that is That is just so – I mean, we, we've seen, like, adrenaline dates where people bungee jump and stuff like that, but – to 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 climb the Bay Bridge in the middle of traffic on a you know whatever day it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday whatever the hell you filmed um that was pretty crazy to to get to do that as a one on one date were you freaked out by that were you like in uh, in your application like oh my god I'm a f- one thing I'm afraid of is heights and so they put you on that date or what yeah I mean I think that's exactly what happened because you know the producers are are extremely cruel people. Um, as everyone knows, but the, the interesting thing about it is that I, I was of course uh, under the assumption that this was like, you know, a standard process, maybe like a, an adventure thing that was done pretty frequently. And then I asked someone like, Hey, how many people have done this before? And I think the number that they said was six and that it was like completely maintenance workers, (laughs) people who kind of knew something about how to keep themselves safe. So um, at that point, I started getting a little bit nervous that we were sort of these um, these guinea pigs. And, you know, if something terrible happened, it would have just added to the drama and they probably would have gone on with the season. But um, thankfully, we were we were safe. And it was I don't know, I, I think I just sort of like held my breath and did it. Um, and it, it was helpful to have Ben there. And he was pretty calm. And I think we both knew that it was um, something unique. And so there was this excitement, too. But it, it certainly felt like we were just right on the edge of like you know, doing something dumb since neither of us had done anything like that before and maybe having a catastrophic outcome. But thankfully that didn't happen. Well, the thing, the interesting thing was when I'm watching the show back then and knowing that you got that date, I don't think any pictures got out of that date. They did of the, of the, the skiing down the streets of San Francisco. And I know, um, I think I forget the other one-on-one in San Francisco. Oh, it was, wasn't the other, oh no, Courtney's was in Sonoma. Who had the other one on one in San Francisco? I think Lindsay. Lindsay maybe did. Does that sound right? Oh, okay, yeah, that might have, that might have been right. But I was like, well, wow, Emily is getting a date in his like this is his backyard, San Francisco. I was like, that must make her a front runner. I'm thinking that. <laughs> I'm thinking that at the time, and I'm like, wow, and they get to do this pretty crazy adventure together, and but then that didn't. Uh, end up happening long term well yeah i mean the adrenaline date is usually a pretty good marker of a longer term solid connection unfortunately it didn't really happen for us and part of the reason so i remember when we were on top of the bridge um we were looking out over san francisco and talking about the city and i sort of asked ben like how you know his thoughts about the city is he gonna see himself there long term and he said no question i will be here for the rest of my life it's my favorite place in the world and at that point i started thinking well First of all, you know, maybe that signals that there's not a lot of room for flexibility and potentially like willingness to move if you find the right person. And then second of all, you know, being on the West Coast, I knew that my life was sort of I I had happy with where I was in North Carolina. And it just felt like that 
that was the first time where I was like, hmm, maybe we don't, we're not completely compatible um, in terms of, you know, what we're looking for. So that, that was maybe one downside, but the rest of it was pretty fun. And it's not, and it's not like you were an early eliminatee either. I mean, you've made it to the episode before hometowns. I mean, um, and that's what my favorite memory of the season was for you. Uh, you and Ben carving, do you believe in love into a tree? <laughs> right, right. right. You know, at that point, I mean, I will say your brain sort of starts to rot on the show, right? Like you have no books, you have, um, you know, basically a lot of nail polish and um, wine. And so you can imagine after five weeks, things start to go downhill. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's, it's got to still be carved into that tree. If I'm ever in Belize, <laughs> I'm looking for that, that tree. Um, so, as, I mean, we know I've had Courtney on probably three times since, uh, since your season, most recently about two or three weeks ago. Um, we know there wasn't the greatest relationship between you two on the show. When, when you look back on it, is there anything you wish you did differently? Um, could you guys have gotten along if, if one or the other did something? Or were you just two people that just didn't mesh? I think I, I think we didn't mesh. And I think the, the tough thing for me is that there there was, to me, with my season, there was a group of us who we were, we were very excited to sort of get to know one another and like have fun together. And I think part of part of the reason for that was that some of us knew that there was not really a solid connection with Ben and we, we had sort of checked out. And so I think that's totally expected when you have 25 or 30 random people who are sort of thrust into this environment, they're just not all going to be a great match for the lead. And so they're like, well, we're here, we'll have fun. We'll get to know each other. And I think that was sort of the group that a lot of us fell into. And so when Courtney was sort of in, so intense about Ben and also didn't really show a lot of effort to sort of getting to know the larger group of us and spending time with us. I think it was, it was natural that we felt some distance there. And um, I, I think that if I could have changed anything, I, I would have tried to have been uh, a little bit less competitive about the whole thing and, and maybe even considered leaving earlier, acknowledging that, um, you know, I, I didn't really see long-term potential and that it, it maybe wasn't the right decision to just kind of stay around because I liked the girls and I liked, you know, the experience um, and, and because I sort of wanted to prove that I could keep, keep going on the show. So I, I, yeah. I, a more mature perspective would have been, Ooh, this isn't really, you know, the, the right place for me and you know, it's time to go. But at the time I was seeing it as a, this fun adventure and I think there was a competitive element to it as well. That was appealing to me. And you look at, I mean, people like Courtney, every season there's the girl or even the guy that is just like, Hey, I'm here for the lead. I don't care to make friends right, with anybody exactly. else. And we've seen those characters throughout the year. Normally this is the way it goes. It's just, they isolate themselves and they alienate themselves yeah. from everyone else yeah. in the house. And sometimes they come out on top. Like Courtney has done a, um, you know, she's written books and, or a book yeah, and, yeah. you know, she's done well for herself. And I think people have seen a different side to her. And I think when I even asked her, do you, you know, what is, what is something you think you wish you would have done differently? And I think she has said, I, I wish I would have been a little more open in the house. I, I, I just wish I would have talked to more people and not taken naps or whatever she did. Um, well, and what I will say is that I, I totally understand, you know, if you're really into the lead and if you see yourself as the person for, for them, 
it makes sense that you would be, first of all, a little bit more antagonistic toward everyone else who was competing for him. Um, and also that you would be a lot more focused on whatever you could do to kind of further that relationship. And so I totally get it now. I just, at the time, I didn't feel that myself. So I think I had a hard time sort of sympathizing. Yeah. Um, do you, do you still keep in touch with your girls from your season? Here and there. I I think we, we all sort of follow each other on Instagram I and mean, we're not, um, uh, geographically close to one another. Most of us are sort of spread out, but, um, I certainly, you know, keep track of, of what they're doing and, um, and enjoy seeing baby pictures and most of them have gotten married. So it's, it's been fun to kind of see regular life move on. You can follow Jamie Otis's life all across, uh, married and first sight. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Works. We're actually, we're due five days, I think five days or maybe a week apart. So I'm super happy for her. Um, and it's, it's been fun to kind of she's we've had it seems like we've had kind of similar pregnancy experiences and so it's been fun to kind of follow that well the other thing is as you mentioned to me i didn't even realize this so courtney jenna cooper who was my guest two weeks ago uh elise from your season jamie otis becca martinez you're all due next month like did you guys (laughs) did you guys make a pack together to hey hey, let's all get pregnant (laughs) at the same time like one of those high school groups that used to do that back in the day yeah, just me and Courtney. Everyone else just uh, <laughs> uh, totally coincidental. Yeah, it's it's a little bit weird. It's a little weird, but I guess it it makes sense that you know, as there are more and more of us who um, have done the show, that I don't know. I'm sure someone could figure out statistically what the probability is that five or six of us would be pregnant at the same time. But it does feel feels coincidental for sure. Okay, I want to let's get into the reason I brought you on today because, as far as I know. I don't pay attention too much to the jobs on this show, but I don't think we've ever had an epidemiologist on The Bachelor or Bachelorette. You have to be the only one. So for people that don't remember your season or don't even know, tell everyone and just kind of fill everyone in exactly on what it is you do for work and what your ba- and what your background is. Yeah, so I have a doctorate in epidemiology and um Epidemiologists do lots of different things. I'm in a university setting. So my job is a combination of teaching and research. So I teach some master's students and medical students. Uh, Most of my uh, coursework is focused on uh, statistical methods and study design, which are sort of the, we call epidemiology sort of the basic science of public health. And the idea is that Um, You you have lots of data, different types of data that you use to figure out why people get sick, um, look at patterns of treatment, so why some people get treated and other people don't. And then um, this concept of sort of real world data that, you know, we have these these drugs that are developed in the setting of a clinical trial, for example, and we want to know how those drugs work in um, sort of everyday life, sort of real world populations. So we we use lots of different data sets um, to look at at those questions. And most of us focus on one particular disease area. So some people focus on uh, cancer, some people focus on heart disease, some people focus on infectious disease. Um, Most of my focus has been on heart disease. Okay. So when this thing first hit, when the coronavirus first first hits um, overseas in China, and then there's, you know, talk that it's making its way to the States, when you as a doctor community had heard that this coronavirus was in the States, were you initially like, uh-oh, or was it, <laughs> hey, this, we, we have, we just don't know enough yet. 
it could be bad, it could not, or did you immediately know if if this thing hits over here, we're in trouble? It's it's very tough because early on in the course of an infectious disease like this, things are changing so rapidly. So um, the the issue is that there's very little data to really support sort of definitive conclusions about how fast the virus is spreading, how many people have been infected so far, um, how many people are dying of those that have been infected. And so you're dealing with this sort of data accessibility issue that unfortunately doesn't get better until more people are infected and you have more information about the, the course of the disease. So the two viruses that, that this SARS-CoV-2, this um, virus that causes COVID-19 have um, have been compared to our has been compared to our um, uh, MERS and SARS, and both of those had um, higher uh, case fatality rates. So higher proportion of people who uh, were infected ended up dying from them, and they they also seemed to be more controllable because people showed symptoms faster. And so um, I think there was hope that given that this virus came from the same family, that it might be that we could control the spread more easily than we've been able to. And at the time, I think there was sort of a thought that, yeah, this could be really problematic if this thing spreads quickly. Um, But given that it's from the same family, you know, it might be that the spread isn't as fast as we think, and it might be really obvious who's sick, and we might be able to get a good handle on it. So I think it was sort of just cautious optimism that we could apply what what we, you know, what we know how to do in terms of contact tracing and testing um, and get it under control, but also the you know the possibility that this could spread really quickly. You know, there's so many things that have been talked about since this thing has hit, and we've gone into a you know it was declared a worldwide pandemic, and we've gone into this shutdown that we've been in for the last six weeks. And there's so much information floating out there, whether it's on Twitter or the internet, and you know people have sides of what they believe to be true and and what isn't. And I I kind of wanted to use this podcast to literally kind of just make this a coronavirus, you know, 101 for dummies. Because I guarantee there are people <laughs> out there listening right now who think they know something that isn't true and or believed to be true, and it isn't, and vice versa. And I just want to literally ask basic questions like, I am learning this for the first time. Granted, I've heard stuff for the last six weeks, but even I get confused on what is what is true and what isn't there are obviously myths uh, about the virus versus fact and i'm sure you you know i when i turn on the news and when i see things on the news like i just feel like i want to hear from the people who are experts in this i want to i want to hear from people who are doctors who are epidemiologists who have studied viruses and diseases their whole life you know not people that are being told what to say about it and um obviously someone like dr fauci i think you know, I, I can't believe he's getting shit from people, um, but I guess that's just the way we are as a country now. But that guy literally has been studying diseases for 35 years. Wasn't he the first in on HIV, too? Like, he's well, – I, I love hearing him talk. He's a, yeah, he's great. He's he's a, a bright, shining star in, in this whole mess as far as I'm concerned. I mean, and I think that, you know, the challenge here is that, um, you know, the the infection rates and the death rates are, are obviously very concerning, but – there's this sort of political angle to it that makes a lot of sense because this has major implications for the economy long term. And I know we'll, we'll probably get to that. But, yeah. you know, it's it's understandable that there are um, groups that sort of want to spin the data and spin what we're seeing in, in ways that support certain arguments because they have other motivations and other 
um, other things that they're sort of focused on, you know, depending on on their backgrounds. And so I think it makes total sense that there's a lot of misinformation, even just sort of massaging data to say what, you know, what people want it to say. I, I think that's expected given the sort of scope of this thing. I'm assuming you think that what we did on March 15th, shortly thereafter, which was shelter in place, and I think they said 90, I think 95% of the country of the U.S. is in a shelter in place right now. Um, obviously, I know some places recently are starting to ease restrictions and kind of open up things. But do you agree with the fact of what we did as a country six weeks ago? This is what needed to be done? Yes. And I think it probably should have been done earlier. We're, we're starting to see the flattening of the curve that everybody was was so intent on promoting uh, about six weeks ago. And so I think um, there's there's no question that we've we've benefited in terms of reducing infection rates. There definitely have been lives that have been saved as a result of that decision. Um, should we have done it earlier? Yeah, I, I think probably. Um, and, you know, from the economic perspective, we're still sort of seeing um, and we'll continue to see sort of what the, the costs are. But um, from an infection rate and from a, a death rate, I think, you know, that was the right decision. And I just look I look back on it and, you know, almost playing devil's advocate here for people who are screaming that we should have done this earlier. And it, it sounds like we should have. But, you know, I, I think early February when we started hearing some I think there were some deaths in San Francisco or you know, we only had a, a few. Uh, could could you have could you have shut the country down like we did on March fifteenth, back on February fifteenth, when there wasn't nearly as many cases, and been able to justify it? Because then you would have had people saying, "Why are we getting ahead of this so early? People aren't even dying yet." Like it, it almost took for yeah. okay. You have to look at these numbers. Look who's dying. Look how many are getting infected. We have to go into shelter in place. Where I see what you're saying. I just don't know how they would have been able to sell that to the country when there wasn't factual proof yet that there were this many deaths. You were basically doing it on, uh, to use a gambling term here, on the come. And you're basically saying, like, look, we're taking a chance. We're shutting us down now because you don't understand this could get bad. And But since we don't know that as a country, since we started on March 15th, it's it seems like it would have been a tough sell to the country to do it in February when there were very minimal cases and very minimal deaths. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been a tough sell for sure. I think there would have been a lot more pushback. I mean, there was pushback even even at the you know the, the date that we did it, which you yeah. know some people, as as you noted, have said is was too late. I mean, there's this sort of paradox, right? Because what a lot of epidemiologists have been saying over the past couple of weeks is that if we're accused of overreacting because death rates don't turn out to be what we said they could be, then we know we've done something right. Um, but that's a challenge because, as you say, that people sort of assume, well, it may may not have been as bad as, um, you know, as as I, as you all said that it it could be. Um, and it's hard to know for sure. You don't have this sort of counterfactual or alternate universe that you can see for comparison. Exactly. Um, but but I will say that because the United States was sort of, um, you know, a, a couple countries behind in terms of their their first. Uh, first known case, you know, we can look at places like Italy and sort of see what, you know, what could have, what could have happened. And I think that's, that's really what we should be thinking, you know, what's happening in other countries and, and how can we try to avoid that given that we know we're two weeks behind them on, on this curve. And so from that perspective, I think, um, you know, that, that would be convincing to someone like me, but maybe not to everyone. 
in terms of why um, you know we need to shut shut down. Yeah, it's it's just you 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 already know that whatever the end up the ending death toll of this thing ends up being, you know, maybe by the end of summer. You know, I think the initial when they came out with their charts or whatever it was, you know, we're looking at 140 to 220,000 deaths and right now we're around 60 and if we end up with 70 or 80,000 people will say see wasn't that big of a deal but then right. the counter argument is what well, we we lowered the curve because you did what we asked you to do exactly you know yep. so and i think it's just you know that's where the political thing comes in and, and what i don't want to get in the politics of it but i do want to talk about testing in general because this thing kind of has me confused and i don't really understand like to me i well let me first ask you this are we do we have the ability right now or are we still a little bit behind on getting testing to anybody who needs it? I think we are, right? Behind. We're we're a little bit it depends on the the area and a lot of the responsibility for this has has really shifted to the states. So there are some states that seem to have better capacity than others, but I think there's broad agreement that as a country um we currently can't test as widely as as we would like to. Is that because there's not not enough people to administer them, or we don't have enough physical tests? It's it's really a supply a supply issue is okay. um, is kind of I think the the agreement. Yep. Is the only test that we have right now the one where they jam it up your nose and fiddle with your brain <laughs> for fifteen seconds? Is that the only test for COVID right now? Well, so it, I guess it depends on whether you're talking about antibody testing versus diagnostic testing. Yeah, just the diagnostic um, testing part. I want to get to the antibody. Yeah, so so for the yeah for the the nasopharyngeal swab is is what's being used. I've heard of a, a nasal swab that is um, uh, being developed, and I I don't think it's widely available yet. Okay, so here's my thing with with COVID testing right now, where you're just testing. Hey, um, I want to see if I have it. Okay, so. You go to a center or wherever it is, some or people are doing it in you know parking lots or whatever, and you pull up and they do it in your nose and you get your results back whenever. If you go for a COVID test and you are negative, I don't know this. Maybe this seems just so dumb and so ignorant of me, but to me that doesn't mean anything if you test negative because you could get it two days later. It's almost like well, you would have to test yourself every day, wouldn't you? And that's where we get so into the is, antibody testing part of it. Yeah, and and so actually, you're you're touching on something that's become an important consideration for healthcare systems. And so, several healthcare systems are starting to implement um, like broad testing for everybody, every employee in the system, like every two weeks. And so, the the criticism that you've sort of raised is the one that a lot of people have pointed out that yeah, it tells us something about active infection at that time, but unless we do it repeatedly, what does it really give us in terms of, you know, trying to control the spread and, and, you know, see who needs to quarantine. Um, so, so that, that is a challenge. I think, um, you know, you could argue that it gives you a sense of sort of this, a snapshot of, of who has active infection, but given that, you know, someone could easily be infected the next day or could be, um, you know, infected, but not, not at the point where the test is sensitive enough to pick up that infection um, the, the value of that sort of broad testing is, is unclear. So I was thinking at the time, and even now, like in the last six weeks, I have not been sick. I have never felt sick. Um, so I, I felt like, but I've always told myself, 
if I start getting all these symptoms or any of the symptoms that are related to COVID, whether it's, you know, having trouble breathing or, you know, high fever or whatever, which I had none of, if I ever got that, to me, I don't feel like I should get tested. I should just assume I have it. So why waste a test on me, which seems to be the thing of whatever our test results are now, it's actually a lot lower than what it is because not everyone that has it is being tested because if I were to have sim- if I were to have no symptoms, but I said, I want to go get a COVID test to see if I have it, I wouldn't even be allowed to get tested because I don't have any symptoms. I, I think that's the system working right now, right? You can only get a test if you're at least somewhat sick. Is that correct or no? Well, it's, so it depends on the location. So in my county where I live, for example, Wake County, um, they currently only test you if you're in a high risk group or if you have to be hospitalized. So if you, if you just have, you know, mild fever, some cough, some fatigue, and you know that you've been exposed to somebody who was infected, um, my understanding is that that, that does not qualify you for testing. They sort of, they want to reserve the test for people who are, who are super sick. Um, in other locations, I think where, where there's, there's greater capacity, greater um, number of tests available, um, they might be more interested in sort of finding the true number of people infected. So that sort of lower bar of just having some mild symptoms, but not being you know so sick that you need to be hospitalized, um, that that might be enough to qualify you for um, for testing. And, and then there are other systems where they have universal policies like um, at Duke, when I go in to deliver, they're screening all pregnant women for COVID-19. So I'll, I'll get a test in a couple of weeks, no matter what. And so it, it just really depends on um, the local policies and, and those policies are heavily informed by the availability of testing. But the, I think generally um, what's happening is that in, in each community is essentially reserving the, the tests if, if they do have limited capacity for people who are the sickest. My understanding about antibody testing, and I could be wrong on this, is when you go for an antibody test, it tells you whether you are a carrier of COVID-19, meaning you could have it, but not show any symptoms, correct? Yeah. So this is, this, this is sort of uh, maybe a question of, of really, you know, terminology. So, so usually when, when people say carrier, um, at least in the context of COVID, they're, they're talking about um, asymptomatic. So yeah. if you had a positive antibody test, but your PCR test or um, your diagnostic test was negative, then we would assume that you had prior infection and that your body had evidence of that prior infection that was detected through the antibody testing, but that you'd, you'd sort of cleared the active infection, right? So there wasn't sort of active virus um, in your system at, at the time. So I guess if, if um, by carrier, we mean somebody who has antibodies, but not active infection, that could be one way of thinking about it. You could also say, well, someone who's asymptomatic or presymptomatic, they wouldn't necessarily show up on a diagnostic test yet. Um, well, certainly for presymptomatic, um, but they might they might you know actively be sick and, and able to to transmit that virus to others. So if that that might be another way that people use the term carrier, but I guess it, it just depends on on which of those you're talking about. Okay, so if if I'm an asymptomatic or I'm showing no symptoms, but I could technically still have it in my system. I could potentially give it to somebody else by, you know, touch or cough or sneeze or whatever. But how long, I guess I'm trying to ask about being a carrier, 
how long does that last? Like, does it go away at some point? Or I'm always going to be a carrier of it, even and and maybe at some point it will manifest itself into symptoms, or maybe it won't. Or is that not yes. what carrier means? Well, so we're learning we're learning a lot more about how many people are asymptomatic, and and at first, um, like six to eight weeks ago, um, the sort of general consensus was you can only transmit this if you're sort of actively sick, if you have um, a cough, fever, those are the people that we're most worried about transmitting it to others. And what we're seeing now, um, some emerging data are are indicating that, first of all, that quite a few people who are infected with this virus end up being asymptomatic. And also that you can transmit the virus before you start showing symptoms and that that's actually where a lot of the transmission can happen. So there's a recent study out of Iceland, for example, that reported half of their new cases did not have any symptoms. This is similar to data from China and from several nursing homes in the U.S. And then, you know, they follow these people over time. And what they find is that they think about two thirds to three quarters actually do go on to develop symptoms, but some of them never will. So we have this sort of silent spreader problem where people who are infectious but not yet symptomatic, plus people who are infect- infectious and just will never show symptoms are still able to transmit the disease. Um, and I've, I've heard um, of SARS-CoV-2 call, uh, being called the, the sort of perfect virus because it's highly infectious, can be transmitted in the sort of asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic phases, and also has a pretty high uh, fatality rate. So um, that, that's why it's you know, presenting such a problem for us on, on such a large scale. Yeah, to me, that's the scariest part of all this is that normally it's just like, oh, I have the flu or, or, you know, oh, I have I have covid. I have the symptoms of covid. I'm staying home. I'm self-quarantining for for 14 days until I beat this thing. Then I'm not doing anything. What we're dealing with now is people walking around, not showing symptoms, not even feeling remotely sick, could be passing it on to somebody else. And it's like, at what point does that end? How are we ever going to know if that's ever going to stop? Right. I mean, I guess, um, you know, your your point about the antibody testing is another another important one to clarify that, you know, there's there's been so much interest in this, um, given that we know that that people have been sick, never showed symptoms, but might might have antibodies and may actually be immune. There's there's a lot of focus on trying to get a sense of, of what proportion of the total population that is. And so um, a lot, there's been a lot in the news about um, antibody testing or what they call um, sometimes called serological testing that answers this question, you know, how many people have evidence of, of prior exposure to SARS-CoV-2? And so it's, it's a different test than the diagnostic test because it's looking for the body's response to the virus through antibodies instead of the virus itself. Um, and those antibodies don't mean that you're infectious. They just mean that, you know, you've had a prior infection. Um, and, and if, you know, these tests were perfect, they could tell us exactly how many people had been previously infected. Um, and then, you know, theoretically, you could imagine that if, if previous infection meant you were immune, you could go about your normal life and, and maybe even um, be somebody who could be tapped for operating in a high risk environment where there's there's, you know, good chance of, of transmission and, and be protected. And so there's there's a lot of interest in sort of finding these people. Um, there are a couple problems that I, th- I think are important to note. You know, the first is that the accuracy of the tests isn't totally certain at this point. So the FDA um, has allowed them to be marketed without going through the usual approval process. And so there are tons of people who are developing these tests and some people have called it the, the Wild West. And so 
um, you know, we're, we're learning more about, you know, the, the testing properties of each and which ones are, are sort of best able to determine who has actually has antibodies. Um, but those data are sort of forthcoming. But even if the tests were perfectly accurate, there's there's not good agreement on whether those antibodies mean that we're actually immune. And if um, if they do mean that we're immune, you know, how for how long is this a year? Is it forever? Um, and so what we wouldn't want would be for someone to get a test that shows that they have these antibodies and then go about normal life, engage in high risk behaviors and actually be at risk for reinfection because those antibodies don't mean what what we think they mean. So that we're still unfortunately still just learning a lot about um you know, about the way this, this virus operates. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of painstaking to have to wait for the data to come out. But at, you know, without without long term data, we were sort of just guessing and there's a lot of uncertainty around um, any conclusions that we make. So right now, everyone, um, and I think once things start opening up, you know, we, there's talk of, you know, the phases, phase one, phase two and phase three, certain places are just going to be opening up a lot sooner than other places. You know, Jackson Hole, Wyoming is probably going to open up before New York does. You know, it's just they're going to be able to pass all three phases just because their population is less and there's just less going on there than in a city of eight million people crammed into one area. Um, I just I, I, I get this sense that when we do get to, back to whatever the new normal is, I think that everybody will be required to wear a masks, a, a, a mask, whether to work anywhere they go, you go out to the dinner, you go on a date, you, you're going to be wearing masks. I, I, is that accurate? Well, so the, the mask issue is a, is a funny one because, and there's a ton of confusion. I mean, I, I do you, what's the, what's the policy where, where you live right now? Do you have to wear a mask? It's in not, public? it's um, no, it's, okay. it's, I think it's, it, it's up to you. Uh, but I, I, I see plenty of people that, um, I have not been to the grocery store in six weeks. I've just become an Amazon Prime guy, and I've got so many boxes okay. and so many things being delivered. I just don't want to deal with it. Um, but I think I, I have seen people in cars when I've uh, driven places. I have seen people in their cars with their mask on. So I know mm-hmm. people are wearing them, but it is definitely a choice. I I uh, recently had to take my dog uh, to go get a bath and a nail clipping at the doggy resort, and I called them before, <laughs> and I said, when I come in and drop her off, do I need to have a mask on? And they said, no, it's it, it's up to you. So um, right. so it is it's right. not mandatory here yet. Well, and, and part of the reason for that variation, that sort of local variation, is that um, there have actually been some changes in what federal agencies have told us over, you know, over the past couple months in, in terms of the effectiveness of masks. So if you remember in late February, the Surgeon General came out and said, everybody stop buying masks, save them for healthcare workers. They're not effective in, in preventing transmission if you're just a member, sort of regular member of the general public, right? Yeah. Um, and then a few weeks passed and, and things changed and the CDC came out and said, everybody should wear masks in public places where you might have a hard time staying six feet away from other people. Um, and so, you know, again, this is another area where there's there's a lot of data that's emerging that can tell us something about the effectiveness of, of masks. I mean, on the country level, we do see that, um, several countries that have encouraged widespread mask wearing have done a good job of, of flattening their their curves and, and reducing infections. Um, the challenge there is that those countries are usually also doing other things like um, quarantining people who are infected in, you know, uh, large sort of healthcare facilities and tracking their movements and getting their their um, 
their credit card statements so they can figure out where they've been sort of really more invasive approaches to trying to figure out who they might have exposed. And so it's not easy to disentangle the effect of masks from the effect of those things. Um, but but I think, you know, what, what we're seeing in the U.S., there, there are some some interesting data um, coming out of um, especially healthcare facilities. So one from a healthcare facility in Boston that showed that um, new infections were cut in half after the the hospital required that everybody wear masks. And so um, certainly it's possible that other things were also changing during that time. But I think there's at least some emerging emerging evidence that suggests that, that this could be a good practice sort of more universally. And it doesn't um, really inconvenience people. It's not, you know, the best thing, I think, for a date. And I would love to see a bachelor season where everybody is wearing masks. That would be really, <laughs> that would be really different. Um, but the, you know, the it's, I think, I think there's, you know, most of the benefit in terms of what people agree um, is happening with masks is that they're preventing people who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic from spreading the virus to others. And so, um, it, it's good to sort of reduce the social stigma around wearing a mask. And if everybody does it, then we can be more hopeful that people who don't even know that they're sick are less likely to spread the, the virus to others. Yeah, I just had this thing in my head that whenever we get back to restaurants being open and and all this, that you are going to be at a restaurant and um, your server will be wearing a mask and gloves I, I even thought that, you know what, I wouldn't be surprised if when restaurants open back up, every table has hand sanitizer on it. Just just because I think we're going to be so overly cautious about diseases as opposed to everybody having to get up and go to the bathroom and wash their hands at a restaurant. Just have sanitizer at the table where clearly it has to be labeled sanitizer because maybe some people will think that is some sort of topping they could put on a burger. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, that's, the, that's the way I'm thinking. Maybe I'm crazy. But is that far-fetched to think that they will every restaurant will with a sit down table will include sanitizer or is that just too cost not cost effective i i don't think it's a bad idea i mean i still think um it, you know if, if i were to sort of insist on on a policy that public places like restaurants and bars would implement it would be more along the lines of social distancing rather than hand sanitizer and so you've heard of people talking about restaurants opening and they have capacity for 100 people, but they only take 10 at a time. So that kind of thing, I think, is is also on the table in terms of how um, you know policies could change for for certain certain establishments. But we'll see. I mean, I think sanitizer is not a bad idea. Masks are not a bad idea. Social distancing seems to be um, kind of the best approach that we have um, right now while we wait for a vaccine. What do you What are your thoughts overall on social distancing? Because I, this is another thing that really confuses me. Um, because when things open up and, you know, we get to restaurants, I, I mean, I get there. There's, you know, let's all stay six feet away and, and whatnot. The people that you come in with, obviously, you're not going to be six feet away because you'd be coming in and, you know, sitting at a table. You can't sit six feet away from the person you're with, but you could sit, you know, if they if they seat every other table or every third table. I get that part, but clearly your waiter is not going to be six feet away from you. They're still going to be delivering your food. Um, You know, we've heard stuff about, you know, certain states, I think Georgia and Tennessee are opening stuff up, but, you know, but keep practicing social distancing. They're thinking of opening up gyms and salons. And I'm like, I don't understand how you, if you're telling us to social distance, how can you open a salon? You're, 
your salonist, or what, what do they call it? What, what am I? <laughs> stylist. There's stylist. Stylist. Your stylist can't do your hair from six feet away. Uh, clearly, right. they'll have a mask on, and maybe they'll tell you to put a mask on. But So how can you tell everyone to social distance, but then open up places like beaches, which are kind of opening up? Gyms seem like the worst place to open right now, with <laughs> sweating and breathing and everybody touching the same equipment. Like, I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to know, like, so the, the hair salon one is a, is a good example. I mean, that's one where it seems like it's in direct conflict with like good public health guidance about how to stop infection, the spread of infection. I mean, you could imagine that, so we, (laughs) this sounds ridiculous, but like, you can imagine that the test, if we had really widespread testing that, um, you know, you could make sure that only stylists who'd been confirmed negative were, um, were allowed to, you know, work. Um, I, I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. I just, we just don't have the the right number of tests. Um, but yeah, there, there, there are some establishments where it just seems like pretty much impossible. I think restaurants are, I don't know, I guess it could be, maybe they have an iPad at every table and you submit your order and that you don't have direct um, con- contact with the server, but you're right. I mean, if you, if you have something like a restaurant or, or a hair salon where you're interacting with one person and you don't know that, person's past exposure you don't know their their current state with respect to infection then then you're taking a risk and um you know maybe that person wears a mask and the risk is reduced a little bit but you're still taking a risk if you if you go into a place like that and um there's still active virus in the community for sure i had tweeted something out and posted on my instagram last week of uh the wind resorts in las vegas had put together a proposal to opening up the strip uh, by mid-May, and and it's a 23-page proposal. It is um, very detailed about everything that hotels would have to do for them to open up. And we're talking: the second you enter a hotel, you're given a mask. Um, you never touch the doors entering a hotel. Someone's opening them for you. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the gambling aspect, spreading the tables out. You're not going to be six feet from anybody. But just if you open up Las Vegas, my biggest thing, and trust me, I'm I'm the first person that wants Las Vegas open, but <laughs> just walking the casino floor, it's impossible to everyone stays within you know, outside of six feet of each other. It's just there's just no way that's gonna happen. So that's what I guess my thing to you would be walking in a big group, even if whether people have masks on or they don't, I th- I would think, yeah, I mean I'm guessing Vegas is saying if they're handing you a mask when you walk in their hotel, I'm guessing they expect you to wear it at all times. So everybody walking through a casino floor with masks on, is that dangerous, no matter how many people are in there? Or is it, you know, um, as long as people aren't coughing and sneezing on each other? Like if I walk by somebody one foot away and I have a mask on and they have a mask on and neither of us sneeze on each other or breathe heavily on each other, I don't know. Is it like, seriously, like that's 101 virus 101 for dummies. Is that something that could transmit the disease to somebody else? So I think what what you're, what you're getting at is there it's, it's not really binary of like completely protected or not protected at all. Right. So like there are several steps that you can take to get yourself further along the spectrum toward, um, you know, being completely protected, but you're never going to get there completely because, Masks aren't perfect. So especially, you know, depending on the type of mask, so we know that cloth masks, for example, are not as effective at preventing transmission as 
um, you know, more um, sort of technical masks that are used in medical settings like N95s. Um, and so, so I think what, what you're, you're pointing out, which is a, what we're all sort of grappling with is that, yeah, you can, you can do things to, to try to reduce your risk. You're never going to get it to zero if you're still in a situation where you might be exposed to somebody in public. Um, but you have to, it's, it's really a personal decision and, and it's, it's something that we all have to ask ourselves, you know, what level of risk am I comfortable with? Um, obviously, you know, going into a setting where people are packed together and nobody's wearing masks and everyone's high risk is, a, is not a good idea. Um, a setting where you can reasonably stay six feet away from each other. People are willing to wear masks. People are really um, adherent to hygiene guidelines and washing hands and using hand sanitizers. You're not talking about zero risk, but you're talking about a significantly reduced risk. And so that, that's, I think, where it's, it's tough to give a yes or no answer um, in terms of what's right or wrong. It's just sort of your personal level of comfort. And I think that's that's the tough thing that a lot of cities are dealing with now. Like, um, can can their guidance be sort of universal and and not everybody is uh, you're any any guidance that a city publishes or, or local municipality publishes is going to be. Um, you know, too strict for some people and not strict enough for others. And so I think that's where the, the personal decision making comes in. If you still feel like you're high risk and it's not worth it to you to go get your hair cut or go to a casino, then that, you know, those are the people who can, who stay home. So I, I that, yeah, I think, I think it's, it depends on, on the person. Yeah. I guess that's what some of the cities are fighting now. I, I, I read a story and I don't even know. And it was a local story here in Dallas and I, I don't know if it's actually happened, but it was a couple days ago and a woman who has owned a salon for 30 years says, I'm opening my salon. I know we're not supposed to, but I'm going to, and it's going to be, and you know, we're going to practice social distancing. You don't cut, you have to sit in your car until it's time for your appointment. So you just come in. Um, I, I will, the, you know, your stylist will have a mask. The customer will have a mask and kind of go from there. But they're just saying, like, look, I can't afford to not open up. I'm going to go out of business if I don't. But just because I'm opening up doesn't mean you all have to come. It's basically a personal choice. Do you feel comfortable going to a salon and sitting and, you know, being you have one person within six feet of you, um, maybe a couple others, depending on how far the stations are uh, separated. But that seems to be what we're dealing with, where it might just get to a point where some people are just like, well, this city is open. Even if even though they're way less populated, people are just going to it seems like going to get frustrated with like, well, if that city's open, why can't we do this? Or why even though there's phases where it says you have to pass a two week test of, you know, 14 days straight of number of tests, another positive test going down and and deaths going down. I believe that's how the phases work. Um, then you can open up slowly and get to phase one and phase two. But it seems like that's what it's turning into almost where. <clears throat> almost a personal, what, what can you tolerate? What do you feel well, it, best doing? And it's, it's this sort of uncomfortable philosophical question too, right? Because with infectious disease, what feels like a personal decision has obvious ramifications for other people too, right? So if you make a personal decision to um, go and engage in high risk behavior and expose yourself and be infected, and then you go and you go to the grocery store and you don't stay away from other people and you get close to cashiers, and expose them, then you can see that there are sort of negative consequences for people who didn't, didn't make that choice. They're, they're just yeah. sort of at work and doing the best they can. And so that that's the tough, the tough thing with this is that um, there's no real way to 
insulate ourselves from the decisions of everybody else um, other than to stay at home forever. And we know that that's not a realistic long-term strategy. And so it's the sort of balance that unfortunately, you know, we have to sort of see what happens in terms of case numbers and, and make sure that we're not, um, you know, loosening things too quickly and that we're not seeing the spikes that we were so worried about in early March. And it's, it's not, it's just not an easy, it's not an easy call. Yeah, I don't think it is. And, you know, me, you know, the next thing I wanted to talk about was kind of the new normal and how long do we think this is going to go on? Um, I mean, again, I guess there's no clear answer. Nobody on, on April, when we're recording this, by the way, we're recording this on April 25th. On April 25th, we just don't know. I mean, by July, we could have new information and things could be way better or maybe things could be way worse. We just don't know enough on April 25th right now to answer anything definitively. But in your studies and from what you hear in that community, how long can we expect social distancing and this idea of possibly masks for everybody um, to go on for? So unfortunately, when we don't have a vaccine, we know that loosening restrictions is just going to lead to more infections and, and more deaths. We, we just know that that is, that is the case. Um, And the, I think the problem that we're grappling with right now is that even in places that have been super hard hit, like New York state, for example, um, we think that uh, sort of our best guess based on these serology tests, which you know we talked about we're, we're not are not necessarily perfect at this point, is that um, you know fifteen to twenty percent of people have have been infected, and that's based on a study that came out uh, this past week. So what that means is that we still think that about seven out of every eight people is still vulnerable. And so there's there's still a lot of chance for this virus to spread and to have, a major impact. And with how infectious we know it is, we're going to be dealing with, you know, lots of people who are susceptible to this for, for a long time, especially if we, if we continue to slow things down, right? So that the flattening the curve means you don't reach your peak as quickly, but that's a good thing because you don't overwhelm healthcare systems with lots of, lots of cases, but it, it extends, you know, extends the sort of active um, infection period on, on a population level. And so I think we're going to be dealing with social distancing for, for a while. The, the best sort of analogy, I don't know if you've heard of the, the hammer and dance analogy, but yeah. that it's, it's, it's a sort of interesting concept that I think gets at what we're, what we're sort of in for. So it's a health and sciences reporter from the New York Times named Donald McNeil, who described it um, on, I think, the Daily last week. But the idea is that you know, this social distancing we're in right now is pretty extreme. And so, you know, schools and offices are closed. We're not having really any big gatherings with only essential domestic travel. And so this is the hammer where we're saying, you know, we need to stop this thing in its tracks as much as we possibly can. And it's done a pretty good job of limiting infection rates, but we know it's not sustainable over the long term. And so once we're done with the hammer, we enter this period of the dance where we loosen restrictions a little bit, maybe open restaurants and have the precautions that you mentioned in terms of fewer diners, maybe hand sanitizer everywhere, people wearing masks, or you open gyms and you have treadmills farther apart, you know, lots of different sort of protocols that can be in place depending on the establishment. And then we sort of wait a few weeks and we see what happens. You know, are we seeing a spike and a surge in cases? 
And if not, then maybe we can loosen things a little bit more. And if we do see a spike in cases, then we might have to go back to the hammer for a little bit. Um, so th- this is kind of the reality that we're going to be living with until we have a vaccine or until we reach herd immunity, which is you know enough people in the population who've been infected previously and might be immune. So we don't have to worry about this this rapid spread. You know, you talk about vaccines, and I still want to get to that in a second. But for me, obviously, being the giant sports nut that I am, and I know you're a <laughs> sports fan too, um, obviously we know all sports are shut down, and there's just so much talk of what's going to happen with, you know, the NBA has to complete their season, the NHL has to complete their season, baseball hasn't even started. But what every proposal that is coming across, even though it's still just in early stages and talks, is whenever sports do resume, there isn't going to be any fans anywhere anytime soon it seems to be that we're resigned to the fact that there is going to be baseball played in minor league parks they're going to basically quarantine the teams and they just play in minor league parks in front of no fans and baseball okay i mean a lot more spread out than than like a game of football which rolls around and you know preseason is in august and you know regular season is in september but again Let's just say if the NFL season starts as normal and starts in preseason in August, first games uh, the weekend after Labor Day in September, and they choose not to do fans. Okay, fine. You also have 53 players on every roster. You've got coaches, you've got medical staff, you've got trainers, and then if they're doing the regular schedule and they're traveling to play each other, that means that team, after playing a game, playing against other guys, rubbing up against other guys, tackling other guys – is getting on a plane and going to the next city the following week and playing against another team. I trust me, I want football back as more than anybody. I, how does this happen? This is completely going against what we're being told to social distance. That's a lot of guys in a lot in a, in an area, you know, becoming in physical contact with each other. And then part two of that is when sports start back up again, whether it's baseball, basketball, football. You can't tell me that one person won't end up testing positive for the coronavirus. So what does that mean? Do we have to sh- cuz what we're being told right now is someone tests for the coronavirus, they have to go into quarantine for 14 days and everybody they've come in contact with has to go into quarantine for 14 days, which well, okay, well if that happens on a football team, then that football team is out for 2 weeks and they can't play two games. Like there's just it seems like it's impossible to do that unless by the time we get to summer we can find a way where if somebody does test positive or is showing symptoms, it doesn't shut down the whole team. It's just a solo isolation, not a whole team isolation. Do you think that's possible? I mean, if we were dealing with something that only spread in people who had a fever, for example, or who were coughing or, uh, you know, if, if we we're only dealing with a situation where there was no pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic transmission, then I would worry less. But unless you're testing people every single day, which we know that we don't have capacity to do, um, then you're right. Theoretically, one asymptomatic person could easily infect not only members of his or her team, but also members of the opposite team, as well as, you know, coaching staff and um, officials. Um there was a, a report, a case report out of China that showed that a single diner who had no symptoms infected nine other people at a restaurant where she went to eat, including four people at her table, five people at the tables next to her. And, you know, so so you can imagine, like, if 
if it's this virus is that infectious, even in a situation where, um, you know, it's not like the diners are tackling one another, they're just sitting relatively close to one another, that a sporting event would be really a perfect, a perfect opportunity for the virus to spread given how close, you know, how close contact the the players are. Um, I don't know how you get around that. I mean, as we said, maybe periodic, some combination of periodic testing, wearing masks, hand hygiene. Um, I think it would be really, really tough to ensure that there, that there was not sort of widespread transmission um, from a single asymptomatic individual in the setting of a, a football game. I'm not, not quite sure how, how they would do that. Yeah. Um, tennis, tennis, golf, maybe a little bit easier, but football seems tough. Yeah. And basketball as well. Um, I yeah. mean, yeah. Uh, hockey, uh, it just, baseball seems to be the one that's might be the easiest just because the nine players on the field are all spread out. I guess when you're in the dugout, you would, you could technically sit six feet apart. Um, seems like baseball is, is possible. Uh, however, you know, my, my, my thing and my, the thing that I read was really the only way it could happen is if we got to a point where if somebody tests positive, you don't have to shut the whole team down. And we just don't yep. know. Like right now on April 25th, absolutely. We, if somebody tested positive on a team, that team would have to be quarantined for 14 days. And right. that would completely shut down that league because it's like, well, you can't have all the other 29 teams playing because let's face it, whenever sports comes back, somebody's going to have it. Somebody's going to test positive. Yes. Yeah. And it's just a matter of, do you have to shut the whole team down or can we get to a place where that per- that we can just have a solo isolation and that person is out for 14 days. But again, like it's just like, okay, well, what if it's the best player on the team and now he's out 14 days and <laughs> it's just like, this is, I mean, it, it's just, it's frustrating to think of because just sports in general is just going to be so different when, when they do come back. Well, and, and I think one of the, you know, you mentioned sort of myths versus facts about this virus. And I think um, especially early on people were saying, well, unless you have some comorbid condition or you're over the age of 65, you really don't have to worry. So if you're like a young athlete, for example, um, you, you, you're likely to only have a mild case. And, and what we know is that, yes, fatality rates seem to be lower in people who are younger and healthier, but there certainly are um, cases of, of people who are previously healthy, who've had serious complications, had to be hospitalized, intubated, and some who've, who've died from this thing. So I don't think we should think of um, professional athletes as being, um, you know, only likely to have a mild version if, if they do contract the virus. I think um, you know, it's still possible that they could experience some, some pretty significant um, adverse effects from it. So when we talk about vaccines, ever since this started, Dr. Fauci has been pretty adamant a legitimate vaccine isn't going to be seen in the United States for 12 to 18 months. There's this, all this talk that, oh, by I think there was a study at Stanford or something like that, that they think by September there could be a vaccine. Um, seems rather, I mean, trust me, I think the whole country would, would like that to be true. Um, do you see a vaccine possibly being sped up and being available by September? Or are we looking at, you know, early spring of 2021 before um, a a very foolproof, this is what's going to help vaccine is established. So I think uh, 12 to 18 months is still our, our best guess. And it's also important to note that that is still way faster than um, than we've ever developed a vaccine before um, yeah. for, for something like this. And so 
Um, I, you know, the good news is there are over 500 trials that have been launched related to vaccines and therapies for COVID-19. So there's certainly a ton of activity in this area. Um, my understanding is there are dozens of, of candidates for vaccines right now, and they're in various phases of development. Um, but that there are, are four major front runners, one from China, two from the U.S., and one from, from the U.K. Um, so, you know, the development process can be sped up through a, a couple of different mechanisms. But, but I would say 12 to 18 months is kind of our best guess. I think the important thing also to know is that even if we find them one that works, we're going to need even just the United States is going to need a few hundred million of them. Um, and yeah. most of our vaccine plants can can only make about about 10 million at most. And so there's been some discussion of how do we ramp up capacity if these clinical trials are successful and if we find one that's a good candidate. Um, one of the more interesting suggestions has been to transform liquor or beer plants that have fermentation vats to production facilities. I, not quite sure how that would work, but um, I've, I've heard it's a possibility. Um, but the, you know, the, the other thing to, to note is that even, you know, as the vaccines are, are being developed and as these trials are being conducted, that we're, um, we're able to test treatments, potential treatments for severe cases in real time so that hopefully we can, we can find a therapy that um, is effective for, for helping people who have really severe manifestations of the disease um, and, and that we have some hopefully safety net for, for those people. Even if we can't prevent infection, we can hopefully prevent mortality among people who are infected. And we'll have data from those trials much more quickly, hopefully in the next one to two months. Um, so, so I think that's sort of a silver lining that even if, if the vaccine takes much longer, we'll have some good treatment data um, that can can help doctors know what what works best. Well, it's that's easy. That's just down a bottle of Clorox. I mean, that's what we're told. <laughs> I was afraid. I was afraid that was coming. Yeah, um, I was afraid of that. Have some spray some Lysol in your mouth, and you're good. <laughs> um, okay, so we've we're we're here in April. Everyone says, well, not everyone, but you know this it, with diseases in the past, and this came straight from Dr. Fauci with with diseases in the past when the summertime hits. And the temperatures are warmer. It has been shown in the past that diseases kind of die off and it's it kills it a little bit. Um, but he has said we just don't know because this novel coronavirus is ever changing and um, we don't know for sure. But studies have shown in the past that, yeah, heat will um, cause less people to get sick and, and whatnot. However, there's now this talk of, okay, well, we can make it maybe through the summer and things are going to die down and the curve is really flattened. But then the second wave that hits in the fall, it's like, okay, well, when the second wave hits, does that mean we're back to, all right, everybody, we're shutting down the country again, safer at home, um, you know, social distance, only non-essential, you know, no non-essential businesses are allowed to be open. Like that part of me is, you know, gets really scary because it's just like, well, when is this just this open things up and we're slowly opening things up and then October, November hits and we're like, oh, shit, second wave. Um, sorry, guys, we got to go, we got to go back and shelter in place. Uh, it's like, oh, boy, um, what, what, what are we looking at with this second wave in the fall, which seems to be the new thing that, yeah, if we get through this, we're still not out of the woods because it probably will resurface come October, November. Yeah, so I think the you know the first thing to note is that there's there's some speculation that we might see a reduction in cases in the summer, um, but we just don't you know we don't know for sure. This virus is still infecting people and wreaking havoc in environments that are 
um, hot and humid. And so it's, it's certainly possible that we'll see a slight dip, but you're not, not a huge impact. So we'll, We'll just have to wait and see um, on that. Unfortunately, the second wave is is one um, issue that has has come up. I think people are are largely thinking of um, one pandemic that this pandemic has been compared to frequently, which is the Spanish flu of, of 1918. And yeah. so, what happened there is that you know the the pandemic started in the spring. It calmed down for a couple months. Then the second wave hit in the fall. Unfortunately, that second wave was a lot worse in terms of infection and mortality compared with the one in the spring. And so, um, you know, acknowledging that it takes 12 to 18 months for a vaccine, we're unlikely to have anything that's usable by the, the fall. Um, we're certainly um, we're certainly in a position where that that could happen to us as well. Um I guess if you want to be optimistic about that, you could argue that we'll be in a better position to handle any second waves because, first of all, we'll have results from several trials of treatment, hopefully at least one of which will be effective in um, people who are severely affected by by this virus. Um, and then hopefully we'll have some ability to test a lot more more broadly than we're we're testing right now. And so this this concept of um, you know testing, tracing, and isolating might be more of a reality than than it currently is. And we know that that's sort of the bread and butter of a public health response to a virus. And so, um, in combination with social distancing policies, you know maybe some of this hammer and dance scenario where we're really keeping a close eye on infection rates and um, expanding uh, um, our our testing. That that we might be in a much better position to deal with it than we were when when it first sort of hit hit the U.S. in the, in uh, early spring. So I, unfortunately, I, I think the fall is still a high risk time for us. Um, you know, we're, we'll hopefully have some better treatment data, hopefully have more testing capacity, and hopefully people will take it more, more seriously, have better hygiene, better um, or more willingness to practice social distancing. So we, we won't be as affected as, as people were in 1918. You know, I think with everything that is happening and, you know, there's so many other, there they're all little factors of, you know, kind of how long does it stay on hard surfaces, plates, bowls, utensils? I mean, it, do we know? Do we even know the answer to that? Like how long it lasts? I've heard different things, like the thing about the cruise ship or whatever, and it said, oh, it stayed on some of the beds for 17 days after all the people got off the cruise. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Um, do we know how long, uh, you know, uh, this virus hangs on a, a doorknob or uh, a table that you touch, uh, you know, plates, bowls, utensils? Do we know for sure? Yeah, I think we have pretty good understanding of, of how long it lives, and it depends on on the, the surface, right? So that the best guess is that on metal, it's about five days. On plastic, it's up to three days. Cardboard, 24 hours. Um, the good news is it doesn't seem like there's uh, there's transmission through food or water, um, and so, you know, people have asked about the best way to handle takeout, for example. And um, I think that the agreement is that your greatest risk of, of infection is um, just from interacting with the person who brings you your food. Um, if they sneeze or cough on you and they're sick, that's going to put you at high risk for, for infection. Um, but if you want to be super cautious and careful, um, you could remove your food from your, the container that it came in and, and throw that away, wash your hands and then eat on a, a plate from your own kitchen. Um, but, but I, I think there's, you know, there's pretty good agreement that, that most of the concern about transmission is from person to person uh, through droplets. And that that's, that's really what, where we need to focus. And that's been 
um, really the driver behind the, the focus on social distancing as opposed to like, you know, washing everything that comes in your house. But but if you if you want to be super, super careful, you could use that 24 hour period of um, the virus staying live on cardboard, for example, and, and just be aware of that as, as you sort of handle packages. I think one of the things that's really scary about all this is, like you said, it's a it's a personal choice. And you said personal tolerance level for each individual, what they what they think. But I flying just seems so bizarre at this point because it just seems like one of the worst places to be during all this is in an enclosed area. I don't care how much they spread your seats out on a plane. You're still in an enclosed area with a bunch of strangers who you have no idea who they've been in contact with. And the, you know, the airline industry obviously is taking a, a huge hit right now, but I mean, at what point does anybody feel comfortable getting back on a plane for vacation and non-essential stuff? Obviously people have to travel for business still right now, but I mean, do you see a point where planes just are like, okay, open for business. We're, we're good to go. You can sit next to somebody on a plane and I, it just seems like that's so far away. It feels far away to me too. I mean, I, I guess, um, again, you're, it's, it's like your analogy with the, the casino. Um, there are some situations that are going to be riskier than others, a super crowded plane where nobody's wearing a mask and, um, people aren't really practicing great hand hygiene would be riskier than one that has fewer people, everyone wearing masks and, and everyone sort of being fanatical about washing hands and using sanitizer. So it is still on that spectrum of risk, but, um, yeah, for non-essential travel, it doesn't make a, a lot of sense to me at this point, given that you can't reduce that risk to zero. Yeah. And I, I, even the summertime, I'm just thinking like, God, I don't even feel comfortable traveling in the, in, in the summer. But again, we don't know, maybe something will happen in the next month or two and we'll find more stuff out. Um, you know, one of the last things I wanted to talk about, uh, is a project that you're working on through your work, uh, called the hero registry. Can you explain to people what that is? Yeah. So it's, um, I'm really excited about this project. It's a, it's a new registry that, we launched to um, essentially look at healthcare workers and the impact of COVID-19 on healthcare workers. So um, if you follow the news at all, you know that healthcare workers are at higher risk for infection. And there are some studies that suggest up to 20% of them have been infected in some settings um, with, um, with SARS-CoV-2. And so um, this is a, a population of people who not only is at high risk for infection, but is also at higher risk for things like um, emotional distress, anxiety, burnout, and all the other sort of negative emotional impacts that come from having to respond to the pandemic. And so what we're trying to do is understand um, not only the impact on um, healthcare workers in terms of infection, um, but also to, to understand sort of how they're doing over time in terms of, of emotional well-being. And so um, the registry is open to any healthcare worker in the United States. Um, we define healthcare worker as anybody who works in a healthcare setting. So this could be um, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory techs, uh, lab techs, um, doctors, uh, people who work in food services, environmental services workers. Um, it's it's pretty broadly defined. Um, but we we'd love to if if you're interested, we'd love to have you visit heroesresearch.org read more about the registry and, and hopefully sign up. Um, one of the things that we're, we're actively doing is um, 
working to to connect people with clinical research opportunities that are specific to healthcare workers. So we have one trial ongoing that's looking at a potential preventative therapy for COVID-19 um, in, in healthcare workers, um, given their, their high risk and there are going to be others in the future. So um, we're really excited about the potential to connect people with uh, future studies and also to learn more about um, how people are doing in, in terms of um, their their sort of psychological um, well-being at this point and, and um, during this difficult time. Yeah, that's heroesresearch.org, H-E-R-O-E-S, research.org. Um, you can go to it. Like you said, I've, I'm, I just pulled it up right now. Um, hey, there, hey, there's a video of you. Yeah. <laughs> There's me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No wrapping. No wrapping. Oh, but, um, damn it. Well, it's, I don't it's, want to watch uh, them. <laughs> right. Right. Um, where? What do you say before I click on this? Once we hang up, uh, what? What are you saying in this video? What is? Is this just talking about it? Yes, that's just talking about the the registry and and uh, telling people why we're doing it. Um, another important piece of it is that we're a- we're actually asking healthcare workers what is most important to them so what what do they think we should be studying um what are the major issues they're facing and we've gotten some really interesting responses um people are concerned about a lot of different things and and we're hopeful that we'll be able to contribute some good data and and hopefully understand how um you know how this is impacting them and and let's make no mistake people that are working in the healthcare industry right now and working in hospitals like Hats off to them for what they're dealing with on a daily basis, especially, you know, in places like New York, where it's obviously hitting a lot harder than, you know, smaller t- cities and smaller towns. Um, I-, I just can't imagine what they're going through. And if anybody can help in any way to any healthcare worker or nurse or any hospitals, I mean, they they truly are uh, heroes right now because I-, I-, I can't imagine what they're dealing with on a, on a daily basis. Um Yes, and we want to develop evidence to help help keep them safe and hopefully help prevent infection in, in this high risk group and make sure that um, you know their infection rates are lower, that they're not exposing their families as much, and and that we um, you know can can do what we can in terms of supporting emotional well being. Yep, and that's heroesresearch.org. Uh, check it out. Uh, one final thing before we leave, Emily, we talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. You are due with your second child next month. Um, you have decided not to know the sex of this child. You are going to be surprised and you yes. already have uh, a son, Ned I, I, is, what is he? Two, two and a half. He what just turned two. Okay. Yes. Just turned two. How's that been? <laughs> you know, as terrible as they tell you, it's no, he's, he's wonderful. It, it's, it's been, um, an interesting process. We've tried to introduce him to the concept of a new baby coming in. So we bought him this doll, um, and like the hill, um, he, he has a very, uh, hot and cold response to it. So the other day he picked it up and, and gave it kisses and then promptly spiked it on the ground. So, um, it remains to be seen how the transition is going to go in terms of bringing a new child into the house, but, um, we'll, we'll see. I, I think we're just going to have to buy him a gift and tell him it's from the baby and hope that that's good enough. Are you guys in an area? I know this was being talked about in certain hospitals where, oh, only, only the person who's delivering is allowed to be there. Uh, are you good to go with you and your husband being in the delivery room or your husband? So right now the, yes. So Duke allows one person right now. Um, so he'll be there uh, unless something changes. Hopefully there won't be any spikes in cases and they, they won't change that policy, but he'll, he'll be there now. 
Um, he did sleep through most of labor last time. So, you know, having him there is sort of nice, but not um, super helpful. But we'll we'll see if that changes. Maybe he'll be more supportive with baby two. How, how, how do you sleep during labor? I, I That's what I, I want to know. I still haven't figured it out. I mean, there's like this plastic couch and apparently that was... Yeah, that was that was more appealing than just holding my hand and hearing me whine. <laughs> um, Emily, thank you so much for coming on. This was very, very uh, informative. Um, crazy it took three years to get you on the podcast, um, but I think this was um, something that needed to be done, especially in this time. And yeah, like I said at the beginning, you're you're. The, I'm not just like, hey, finally have Emily on. It's like it it was relevant because this is. This is your background. You're the only person in the history of this franchise, as far as I know, that has a background in this and went to school for it. And I, so I figured, wow, this would be perfect to have. Uh... Oh, ba- by the way, you're back to number one. So there you go. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, Good to hear. yeah. So you're. Um, but yeah, it was it was very, very informative. I hope people learned something. I hope they heard something that maybe they thought they new but what you laid out was okay that makes more sense um but yeah there's obviously a lot of stuff to digest here we're in totally weird times it feels like we're in bizarro world and living in an alternate universe and and the bottom line is we don't know when this is going to end and we don't know when we are going to be able to get back to normal and i can guarantee you pretty much that when this is over i it's there's going to be a new normal and we just don't know what that new normal is Yes. And, and in the meantime, you know, everyone avoid drinking bleach or injecting bleach, which is worse than drinking bleach. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, keep keep following your local policies, good social distancing. But thanks for the opportunity. It's been really fun to talk with you and hopefully we can catch up again soon. Yeah, no, no doubt. And thank you uh, again through these years uh, for just being a friend and just being able to bounce stuff off you whenever I feel like it and uh, um, just kind of being there over these last eight years or whatnot. So thanks again, Emily. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Emily for that. I hope you guys were enlightened, informed, and understand why I put her on because of the times that we're in. There are so many questions, and and let's face it, we don't have any answers right now. I recorded that last Saturday on April 25th. It's now April 30th. It's not like we have any more advancements in five days, but to hear from somebody who studies this and who's in that field and knows a little bit more about the virus than just your average Joe, I thought it was important. And it has a tie to Bachelor Nation. So she was great. Thank you, Emily, so much uh, for coming on and doing that. It's been a long time coming that she came on the podcast, but finally glad we had a reason to to get her on and and have her do it. As always, please rate, subscribe, and review in Apple Podcasts. It is much appreciated. And again, if you are interested in purchasing N95 masks, my father has a um, contact with a a um, factory overseas that makes N95 masks. They are they are FDA approved. It is a 300 piece minimum order. Um, if you're interested, hit me up at steve at realitysteve.com. I will forward your email on to my father, and he will be in contact with you uh, shortly thereafter. So um, I know people are struggling getting masks. This is another way to do it. Um, 
Prices are changing every day, shipping prices as well. That's why I don't want to pinpoint a particular price for you guys, but um, it is a 300-piece minimum order. Just keep that in mind. So, again, that is podcast number 180. Thank you so much to Emily for doing this. She was great. I hope you all enjoyed it. And we will be back next week with podcast number 181. So, for Emily O'Brien, I am Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Talk to you next week.